0: 130 episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players and game masters with your questers, Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things thaumaturgical Extraplanar Part 2. But after we get to the quizzical part, because we have some uh, emails to get to. And by the way, we're talking to Nethermancer later on. So it's all things spooky and oogie boogie, as Josh said, but way back on episode 39 so, welcome to episode 130. We are going to get down to some business here. Uh, we have some emails, as I mentioned before, to get to, and that's just plentiful, I will say. They are wordy, so I hope you like the sound of my voice, because you're going to hear it a lot in the next minutes. Uh, okay, this one it comes in from Riley. I love the podcast, but occasionally, I have thoughts. I'm going to stop there and just let you absorb that sentence. Oh, no. I want to argue that you price the spellbook far too low. While I agree that the price usually includes the teaching, the price also only gives you access to that teacher for a limited period of time. Buying a spell book gives you the forever access to that tome and the ability to resell it to someone else in the same way you just bought it, so they can have as much time as they need to learn it. Especially important, since if you fail learning a spell, you might not be able to try again for a while. I personally would take the average price listed as as listed to learn and double it and trying to buy one on the open market, I would quadruple it. Again, not an important note, but a thought that immediately came to head when listening that I couldn't hold in. Cheers, Riley.
1: Yeah, that's cool, if that's how you want to do it. One of the problems with trying to assign monetary values to loot that isn't already provided in some capacity is that Different games have different standards of what a quote-unquote lot of money is. And so while those values might make sense for you in your game and might make sense in somebody else's game, if there's a lot of free-floating cash going around and you want to find ways of draining your group's funds for some reason, then that might be perfectly acceptable. If a game is not as flush with cash, then maybe those values might seem way out of whack for the economies involved in that particular campaign, which is why I'm pretty sure I said, this is where I would start as a baseline. Yeah. And then you can adjust as suits your campaign based on how much money they have, what circles they are, all sorts of other stuff like that. It just seems like a really good starting point to just go with the values of the spells as they are sort of indicated in the books and then just apply your own adjustment up or down depending.
0: Yeah. Like you said baseline. So not a bad place. This one is from Brian who has some comments or at least some thought on second chance talent. We keep panning uh, a little bit. Just thought I'd toss in my two cents regarding the second chance talent. While I can certainly understand the feeling of looking at all the other talents available and seeing that there are often more exciting talents to take, I have to disagree with the estimate you've been making that it's always not as good as other options. I think there is a lot to be said for the value of consistency. While it may often be a less interesting path in the sense that it isn't adding any new abilities, being rely on your roles succeeding is also a very strong ability. Even if you're very likely to succeed on something, given that you are likely to be making half a dozen rolls per round on a master tier character, second chance can easily come up most rounds. It becomes even more important for any discipline that relies on a single roll to make an happen. That is to say, magicians. Failing a spellcasting test at a critical point in time is a big deal. Being able to turn something that has a 70% chance success rate to having a 91% success rate, with the added benefit that if you don't need it for the spellcasting test, you can save it for any rolls that come after, whether that be an illusionist, taunting another mantic, uh, using Frighten, concise casting, or whatever else it may be, it is a very significant advantage. Likewise, a Beastmaster who has to rely on not missing for Claw Frenzy to keep going can gain a lot from that extra layer of security. If they have a bad first or second attack role, second chance could be worth as much as five extra attack talents. It may have somewhat less value on disciplines such as Warriors or Sky Raiders, where you can rely on making several attacks to get the job done. But even then, you can have important roles that you really want to succeed at, and in any event, it is unlikely to be worse than having an extra attack talent like second attack or second We assume that one of the four or five roles might fail. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that every character should take the talent. Earthdawn do- does a very good job of offering differences in character building. I admit that there are lots of tempting options for any dis- discipline to consider other than second chance. I am simply saying that second chance is a talent that takes all of your other investments and makes them just that little bit stronger. And that is worthy of being comp- competition for many other master tier talent options. Thank you.
1: Those are some good points, Brian. That is... Something to keep in mind that it could affect the statistical likelihood of success when it comes to important tests that you really want to make sure that you succeed at, you know, whether that is an early claw frenzy attack that doesn't hit or if you're doing something like. (laughs) Fair spliced weave where you can where you are conceivably going to be making multiple thread weaving tests per round or anything like that i can see the value in that i think whether the opportunity cost of losing access to another master tier optional talent in order to take that is worth it is something that individual players would need to decide for themselves and whether the investment that would be required in second chance to get it to where it's worth using. Because remember, at low ranks, it's not really going to do you much good at all if you're doing that to try and replicate a high rank talent that you failed on. It's just something that you're going to need to consider. And as has been made clear, my assessment of things has been that there generally are more exciting Talents that you could choose to replace it, but yeah, you raise some some potentially good points I I think one of the weaknesses of second chance as an option comes from the fact that I'm pretty sure and I don't have it in Right-to-hand to to check, but I think the original version of second chance. I'm, I'm talking about like the original first edition version I think it was a talent that Anybody could pick up and was not part of the talent progression, much like leadership was or one or two other talents that are kind of now slotted into those options. And I think in a situation where it doesn't take up one of those limited resource slots, it becomes a much more desirable option to add. I don't know for certain whether that's the case from first edition, but it feels like it might have been. And that definitely changes the calculus of how I would value it within that paradigm. The other thing that you could think about if you are looking at that, I mean, by the time you're master tier and are deciding your options, you would have a pretty good idea, like if you are pursuing a path, if there are talents that are available through your path that could duplicate an option that you would be taking as your discipline. There aren't a lot of super specific master tier talents. I don't think that are available through paths. I have not done the analysis on that to be sure, but that's something that you could potentially look at as well. But all that to say, good points. Thank you for bringing them up. And it does make sense within a certain framework that it might be a desirable option.
0: At least for the disciplines you brought up. I mean, yeah, thank you for that analysis. Well done, sir. On to a rather long one from Tim. Tim, and you can quote me on that. Just kidding. So we got some questions in the middle of all this. I will parse as needed and uh, pause for Josh's responses, because again, this is a longer email. So I saved the longest one for last. Uh, first, thank you for the podcast. Uh, afternoon, Jan and Josh. I have just consumed the entire backlog, barring 128, which came up today, and I'll listen to it tomorrow, over the last six months. And now I'm going to have to track down the legends of bar Save to keep the drive home filled. I played a couple of sessions back in 90-something, and then carried on with other role-playing. Shadowrun, Rolemaster, more Shadowrun, even more Shadowrun, Hero, EABA, D&D 3.5, and a few others. And I'm definitely on the more simulationist side, and enjoy getting into the weeds and how things work on a medieval-adjacent world. I've now bought some of the 4th edition books, and I'm looking to run or play in bar save soon-ish when I have both time and players. So as you've been asking for questions and comments, I have a few, and these are in no particular order. They are more on general topics rather than specifics about the game mechanics, as I have less experience with them. The rights of Protection and Passage. I'm going to read the comments first. I assume netherwalk does not work through them. Also summoning spirits, will they work within a care? And could you summon a named spirit at one care, work with them, and then they can go to another care and work there as well, allowing communication between cares during the scourge? Can the passion get inside cares from the mad passions? I think this would be true. So the rites of protection passage, do these prevent astral sensing across their boundary? And spells and talents like Earthwalk, Thoughtlink, and similar, can they work through the wards? Generally speaking, I would probably say no. To get back
1: to the question about spirits, there is an example in one of the published novels. I think actually it might be uh, one of the short stories in the Talisman collection. Mm where the main character is a Nethermancer and is doing the Nethermancer karma ritual where they summon a spirit and have tea with it. And so clearly, like, within that case, they could summon the spirit, and so the spirit could be brought into the 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 care and the wards. I certainly imagine that the passions would be able to, through which power or ability or mechanism. That's a great question. Who knows when it comes to the passions? Agreed. But otherwise, I wouldn't allow Netherwalk to cross the boundary. So there's a couple of things that are going on here with this. Part Mm -hmm. of the reason that the Cares were built underground was so that they did not need to ward the entire outside of it because the, the earth itself, the living earth would act as the barrier. That the only places that they would really need wards and protections would be sort of on the the doors and gates and the entry access points, or points plural, to the care. And so that protection served as both concealment for the residents of the care from general astral sensing because the the Earth itself would act as a barrier, act as a solid object that would prevent astral sensing across it. So obstruction. Yeah, so an obstruction. And, And so netherwalk, I believe, without looking at the exact rules of the talent, I don't believe netherwalk allows you to walk through living astral patterns. But I would be inclined to say, no, it doesn't, because that would be a super big Drawback or weakness because a horror, like an astral horror, could just simply, you know, walk into the the care the way one does not w- walk
0: into Mordor. Yeah, walk says while an astr um, <clears throat> while in astral space, the adept can pass through many barriers that exist only in the physical world.
1: Yeah, so a regular door in a house, unless it's enchanted in some way, is not a living astral pattern, and so you could cross that with another walk. But the actual Earth itself, if you've got an underground care, you can't pass through the Earth as it is, quote unquote, a living astral pattern. So, yeah, I would suspect that spirits and the like, the magical mechanics of the way that summoning works opens that barrier, opens that spot for the spirit to come through. There are examples in stories and other places where horrors are able to get into a care because somebody brought them in. Jerole, in fact, is afflicted by the despair thought that is his personal horror throughout that first novel. While the care is still sealed, he is able to be sort of infected by that. So there is certainly examples of that barrier is not impermeable. But I think generally that there requires some kind of effort for people within it to open up that conduit to allow spirits or other entities to cross through. To get back to to a question that we didn't specifically address, but kind of is answered by Implied. So, yes, in theory, a named spirit could be summoned in one care, do some work there, and then be summoned at another care later. The likelihood of such things is probably kind of small unless for some reason there was a specific reason that the name would have been known amongst all of those summoners. But yeah, it it could also conceivably allow communication between cares. I don't think that you could summon a spirit, task it with entering another care, because it would still have to travel through astral space and would run into the issues that it would, like any other astral entity that would be trying to cross that. I think the spirit's native realm in the elemental planes or the netherworlds or whatever kind of gets around the, the traditional astral space stuff.
0: Totally fair. So if it does not work and cares are totally isolated, then I was thinking on the query about why there was so little development during Scourge centuries, and there might be a way to explain. Low population numbers, from, See, the smaller the population, the less chance you are going to get a person or a group of people with the right mind to drive technology or science or politics further... So the pace of things will pace of change will slow in addition to this being stuck in a care it's probably going to encourage the majority to want to keep the status quo and the grass being greener on the on this side rather than the other a bunker mentality and not rocking the boat
1: That's not a bad thought if you kind of consider it that the big sort of dramatic political change was the the council compact in thrall, which is a large society, but you still look at things like Travar, for example, which is a city that had thousands of people yeah. living in it over the course of the Scourge, and the same merchant houses that were in existence at the beginning of the Scourge were the same ones that came out, And there, and aside from, oh, well, their fortunes might have risen or fallen a little bit, it's all the same stuff. Over the course of four centuries, even within a closed environment, a sealed bunker It still seems an an unusual amount of stasis, given how much change can occur within a society in any given 400 year period. Setting aside, like most recently, technological advances here in the the 20th and and early 21st century. Yeah. Look at the difference between Europe, whatever was happening in Europe around the year 1200 and the year 1600. Mm -hmm. You don't have the same countries you don't have this like the number of wars and various other things that kind of happen now obviously you're looking at a much larger scale looking at europe but look at england right Mm -hmm. the british isles and the norman conquests and and all sorts of other stuff that could go on and so yes you know if you're looking at a smaller care and the general sort of conservatism that would go along with just kind of looking to survive can explain a little bit of it but it it still feels really weird that you could have generations of humans or orcs or trolls or even dwarfs living within an area and not having some kind of potentially radical change or development or whatever even if it's not from a technological standpoint because of a lack of resources just from a social standpoint or changes that might happen there so it's the kind of thing that you you don't want to poke too hard (laughs) otherwise it falls apart and you can sort of hand wavy them or no prize yourself into whatever explanation kind of makes
0: sense for you it's just something to think about nice deep pull in the no prize so again with cares and horrors is the majority of the cares being secret as well as defended so that fewer horrors will test the defenses? It also said that the rites also had trapping spells. Would these be in layers around the cares so potentially physically distant and then allowing a much more interesting trap or horror filled maze on the way in or out? Also, what do you think happens to horrors that are caught in traps when the mana level reduces and other horrors retreat? I can imagine there are some that have been able to gather more magic to themselves and can last out the years quite possibly in a care that has fallen.
1: Yes. So the secrecy of the cares, the fact that they are hidden underground and often had their entrances masked or concealed or whatever was another way to just reduce the chance that a horror could find them and potentially breach the care. And the extent and nature of the traps protecting a care through those access tunnels would depend largely on how wealthy or large the care was in the first place. It could be that a a smaller town or village might not have had the resources to put into trapping the access corridors because they had to put all of their energy into creating the shelter in the first place. Putting extensive traps isn't going to do you a whole lot of good if you don't actually complete the place that you're going to be living in in the meantime. So there is a potentially incredible amount of variety that you can have with that sort of thing. With regards to horrors that are caught in traps when the mana level reduces or or other horrors retreat, there are examples in published material about that. The short story inheritance in the original first edition Mm -hmm. book revolves around a fallen care That trapped a horror within it and the horror's attempts to escape the short story collection talisman. Also, the the horror that's kind of running through the the story on that also gets trapped and eventually gets released or escaped in the course of, of the stories there. So it is certainly something that can happen. And the fact that it is trapped in a magical prison of some sort could be something that would allow it to remain when it otherwise might have been forced to retreat. When it comes to that sort of stuff, there is a lot of flexibility and creativity that you can have to do what you want from a narrative standpoint. Um, As I recall, and I did not do a whole lot of digging on this, Life Rocks, sort of acted as a care on their own. The men that were part of that brotherhood would merge with it in the dreaming, and so would be protected within the powerful magic of the life rock itself, which would act as a barrier the same way in a sense that the living earth would be for other cares. It's something that I would say is probably just a natural aspect of the nature of Obsidianmen and Life Rocks in the first place—it is not something that they needed to get from elsewhere. It is possible that, depending on the location of the Life Rock and whatnot, that some might have set up additional wards or protections. But that's not something that's detailed very well, and those could have been acquired through another source. But yeah, for the most part, I would say that it is simply the sheer magical power of the Life Rocks themselves that allowed the Obsidianmen to mostly survived the scourge within them, although there were examples of life rocks that were the target of a powerful horror that eventually broke them open and ate the creamy obsidian
0: inside. <laughs> OK, I know some bigger questions <clears throat> when the passions were driven mad. Was it a granting or a sudden avalanche? Yes, I don't some know Some from column A, some from column B. Would the questers feel something at the time? And did they get manipulated to stay in line with the new goals of the passions? This would then be an idea of do people become questers because their goals align? Or are their goals aligned by the passion and then they become questers? Or is it somewhere in between As the higher circle quester you get to the closer, you get to your passion, and thus you become more like a facet of them?
1: Um, Okay, I'm going to address some of this now. I was only being partially facetious when I answered yes to the first part of that. I know. I don't actually have a specific answer. I think it is entirely possible that whatever it was that happened that drove the passions, the mad passions mad, happened sort of relatively quickly. But that the effects on their followers could have been more gradual, depending on the questor in particular and various other factors. So, I think there's plenty of space to kind of explore both possibilities there. We don't know for certain what actually caused the Mad Passions to be mad. There is the idea that is connected with the Abyss of Aras Nahem, where they are preventing Ristul from crossing over into the world and are too powerful to just be destroyed but are being corrupted by it. And that could have been a gradual process, or it could have been something a little bit more sudden. We don't know whether that's actually the case. That's just one theory that's been floated. I think that in some cases, the questors could have been affected pretty quickly. I think that in others, it might have been a more gradual thing, where the passion twisted that. I think that lower-ranked questors were probably less likely to be affected by it than higher-ranked questors. As, as he says in the thing, you know, the higher circle of a questor or higher rank of a questor that you get, the sort of closer you are to your passion. And there's a lot of sense that I hope we provided in the questors' book that the more devoted you are as a questor, the kind of, in a sense crazier you become, like the more devoted you have to be to those ideals and the more extremely you need to demonstrate your devotion to maintain that level of power of, of relationship or whatever. And whether people become questors because their goals align or whatever, I think similarly to disciplines, that varies from individual to individual. I don't think that somebody who does not already, in some sense, psychologically identify with Garland would choose to become a questor of Garland, much like somebody is already temperamentally suited in a way to be a troubadour. Mm -hmm. I think somebody would already be temperamentally suited to be a questor of a particular passion, which makes the mad passions kind of insidious in their way because that's they can get their hooks into somebody who is feeling the negative emotions that are associated with them.
0: Okay, move on. Fair. Yeah, I was just trying to find it. Uh, Would a passion's influence over their questers grow with Circle as well? This seems to be based with the devotion point mechanic. Yeah,
1: basically. That kind of uh, addresses the thing. I kind of uh, talked about that already.
0: Yeah, fair. Again, with the fallout from the maddening of the passions, what has happened to their old spheres of influence? Has there been a gradual lessening of good rulers within Barsave because of Ragok? For instance... From the questers book, it seems like the questers are there to promote the ideals of the passions, so without that promotion, is there a relative drop of their ideals, and are we looking at a downward spiral? Not actually something I'd personally like, as I prefer my roleplay to be generally in a positive trend.
1: No, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't see the passions as the sources of those ideals, so I don't think that the corruption of Rashomon, former passion of rulership, to Ragok... Has done anything to affect the presence of good rulers within Barsave. I don't see them as the source of that concept. I see them as just being sort of associated with it. Fair. While in a sense, yes, there would no longer be, pa- be questors out there necessarily promoting those ideals, it just means that those ideals are no longer associated with a particular spiritual entity. It doesn't mean that 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 concept has ceased to exist or itself has become damaged.
0: Fair. Tim, you are full of questions. A question about the metaphysics of spells and design and more how they come across in this setting. I understand that there are not going to be rules for spell design for players. Is the post-Scourge bar save, or at least parts of it, a place where magical scholarly pursuit can flourish so within the setting new spells are being designed? Behind the door of the great library of thrall wizards have figured out more of the astral currents and are so coming up with a spell that tracks pattern items back to their owners or something, or creating a spell that allows sequestering of a horror mark like the horror stalkers talent. Or are there the spells that came before and no more can be created as we are on our way out of the high magic period.
1: It is absolutely possible for new spells to be developed within the setting. The, Spells that are in the player's guide and a couple of spells that are in other fourth edition supplemental materials, at least as I am, as far as I am concerned, are not intended to be the be all and end all of the spells that are available. I think higher circle spells and we will have a better picture of what those are when the Magic Deeper Secrets book eventually comes out. You know, I think those are probably harder to develop and design, but I don't see any reason why lower circle spells could not be developed and designed, or spells that existed in rules form in previous editions could not actually still exist. We just don't have, like, a fourth edition write-up for them, or that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Porting them over with the extra threads and things, a little difficult to do, so that would feel free to do it on your own in relation to this. Do you think bar age of discovery or looking back to the past or a bit of both from what I have read, listened to, it seems to be somewhere in between a delicate balance of using the glories of the past to guide, to create a better future. This is of course, in relation to the younger name giver races, I'm not going to speculate on the dragons.
1: I'm going to say a bit of both for
0: me personally a big
1: part of the appeal of Earth Dawn is that sort of historical slash legendary approach to things and how you can address today's problems with the knowledge from the past, but that also would carry with it learning about the mistakes of the past and not repeating them. So yeah, a, a, a bit of both. And the amount uh, to which you want to explore that the ratio of age of discovery or looking back to the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're kind of two sides to the same coin. Really? One of the campaign styles is a age of discovery going and discovering things. But those things that you discover are relics or knowledge or information about the past. So that's kind of where I would be with that.
0: There are a number of other less formed thoughts in my head, which may or may not appear at some point. Thank you again, and I hope some of my thoughts have sparked some interest with yourselves. Tim.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tim. Great general questions, some some really interesting ideas there, and I appreciate you, first off, burning Welcome through that to... backlog. Oh, no kidding. And then sending uh, such a, a a bunch of good, um, good topics for discussion.
0: He does have a PS. I noted in the Mystic Paths, page 1-4 of the PDF I have, that the gauntlet information is titled Purifier Talents and Abilities.
1: It sounds to me like you have the backer preview PDF or one of the the early PDFs before the actual books were printed. I checked the official PDF that I've got. It does not have that error. And Dan checked his print copy. And it also says Gauntlet. On that page, so I suspect it was probably an early version PDF that that error got caught and fixed. And so, what you would probably just need to do is go to wherever it was that you purchased that PDF, um, whether that's through DriveThroughRPG or FastGames.com, and download the latest version. Probably for free. In fact, both of those places should have the version of Mystic Paths with the "quote unquote" second print errata. Included into it as well. So that might be worth
0: something grabbing. Totally, because I don't have that one either. Anyway, that ends our quizzical portion of the show, the first half per se, because that was 34 minutes long. And we are now on to the portion where we're going to talk about all things Oogie Boogie and weird, because we're going to get into the second half of the Nethermancer talents, abilities, and whatnot for your uh, character progression to get into. So This is fun. We have a couple of new ones here that we've never talked about before. But since we're rounding out the end of our fifteen discipline list, this should be pretty quick because we've talked about most of these talents before. So at ninth circle, the Nethermancer uh, gets a wonderful little ability because everybody otherworldly willpower. The Nethermancer performs an eight-hour ritual to steal their will with astral influences. Each adept's ritual is unique, often based upon their training and personal philosophy. Some may summon ally spirits, trading a piece of their pattern, while others may expose their psyche directly to astral space. The ritual is often performed as the final step in becoming a warden, but may be done at any time. After the ritual, the adept takes one blood magic damage and permanently adds plus three to their willpower value, therefore raising it up a whole step. Yes.
1: Pretty typical. There are similar abilities that are given at Ninth Circle among other disciplines. This one just boosts the willpower. This also means that they can boost their willpower above and beyond what other characters would be able to, because this would stack on top of their other attribute increase options.
0: Yeah, totally. So this was a nice big boost. Karma, they can now spend a point of Karma on recovery tests. And the discipline talent at Ninth Circle for the Nethermancer. Matrix Sight.
1: Yeah, pretty straightforward. We've talked about this with a few different disciplines. Uh, this expands the Nethermancer's astral investigation abilities. It allows them to see matrices that are possessed by other magicians and learn information about them, and it also allows them to target those self same matrices with attacks that can do so. Yeah.
0: So on to 10th circle, because we're going to get through these really quickly. Uh, The Netherman plus two to their original social defense. So that's not bad. And they also gain an additional recovery test per day. Nice for a spellcaster to have. And the discipline talent, brand new. We haven't talked about this, I think maybe once before. Blood Insight.
1: Uh, No, we have not talked about this before at all, because this is a talent that is only available to Nethermancers.
0: (laughs) Wanted to make sure that. I'm occasionally
1: wrong. They are the only one that has this. Blood Insight allows the Nethermancer to interact with blood in some capacity and gain information and understanding of who it belonged to. They make a test and they learn the gender, race and age, roughly, of the target. Um, If it's within a certain amount of time, like if it's if it's recent blood could be used to form a temporary mystic connection and it sort of allows them to ask questions to learn information about their health or whatever and it also allows them to get a bonus to spell casting and effect tests against that target and uh, also allows them to use that blood as a connection for things like Mystic Pursuit.
0: So a part-time phlebotomist, just making sure. Uh, (laughs) On to 11th Circle. The Nethermancer gets a plus one to their physical defense from their original number, and they now get to spend a point of karma on a summon or binding spell they are casting to improve a bonus or effect step from the spell by two, or reduce a penalty from the spell by two. Not bad either. Yeah, this is expanding
1: giving them a little bit more options and flexibility when it comes to their stuff
0: when dealing with spirits fair and the discipline talent at 11th circle is netherwalk
1: yeah we talked about this briefly with the thief it is available as a talent option for them in their master tier this is a dangerous ability but it allows the nethermancer to open a portal into astral space allowing briefly allowing them to step through and then to sort of travel through astral space as the medium um it is dangerous because being in astral space is dangerous you take damage for the amount of time that you are there uh it does allow you to cross through sort of non-magical things like you know a non-enchanted door like we talked about earlier in the episode or things like that yeah there are some limitations in terms of how they can interact with physical world while they're in astral and stuff yeah, like that. Many,
0: many paragraphs about Netherwalk. On to twelfth circle, the Nethermancer gets a plus four to their mystic defense. So if you're counting, it, it's it's plus two social, plus one physical plus four mystic right now to their original number. And they get a plus two mystic armor. So this is a huge mystic boost at twelfth circle. It's kind of necessary. And the discipline talent is concise casting.
1: Yeah, concise casting is the 12th circle discipline talent for all of the magician disciplines. This allows the caster to cast one spell and then, that same round, cast another spell within certain restrictions. Generally, as I've said earlier, useful for following up a more potent spell with a low circle damage or buff spell that doesn't require thread weaving because that's one of the limitations of concise casting. But it does allow you to to double up on your
0: spell casting within certain restrictions. Fair. Uh, Always a good thing, by the way, for your spellcaster. So, on to the Warden Talent options. Now, you've got 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th circles, you've got four options here you get to choose from, but of course a longer list than four, only two of which are kind of making up ground from where other disciplines may have gotten them in earlier in their uh, progression. Evidence Analysis and Item History, for example. Both of
1: those have a strong sort of mystical component to them, and the Nethermancers' understanding of astral energies and patterns kind of tie into both of those, but they get them later because they're not quite as core to the Nethermancers' concept,
0: and there are other things that they get instead. Absolutely. So, on to the rest of the list, which actually is new to the companion, and we're going to be alphabetically. The Armored Matrix talent.
1: This is the Warden Tier spell matrix. It acts like a enhanced matrix. It just has higher damage rating and has some improved armor to it to reduce the ability of various attacks that become available at this circle to affect the matrix. Totally. Astral Pocket Talked about this a couple of times. This gives the Nethermancer a place to store items in astral space. Just a small, kind of a a small little space. The amount that it can hold is based on their rank. It's a nice, useful place to potentially stash things that you might want to have found physically on your person. We talked about this with the Elementalist. This is a talent that you would use in place of straight willpower if you are doing a contest of wills against a spirit. Yes. Weaponsmiths get this. This is a talent that gives you pretty significant bonuses when you are performing sustained actions at the cost of penalties to other stuff that you might be doing while doing it. So useful for enhancing research, uh, enchantment, um, any kind of long-term thing that you might be doing, it can come in handy. Totally.
0: And then range pattern as an option.
1: Yep. This has come up, I think, with all of the other magicians. Uh, It's a test that you can make to increase the range of a spell that already has a range. It doesn't do anything to self or touch spells, but it does increase the range of spells above and beyond what you might be able to do with extra threads. There you go. Safe Thought. Uh, This is protection from mental influence or other kinds of magic that could read or affect your thoughts or emotions. Soul Aegis. Uh, This one, I'm pretty sure, is a bonus to defenses. Yeah, still a great name. It increases both mystic and social defense by an amount based on the result of the test. It like each success gives you a bonus to both.
0: And then the last warden talent option, summoning circle.
1: Yeah, this is a talent that gives you bonuses when you are doing summonings within the created circle. And there are specific rules on how it interacts with everything, but it
0: basically gives you bonuses to those summoning tests. Nicely done. So, if that's not enough for you, and you think you should retire it, let me take a little bit and bring you on board to the master tiers of 13th Circle, 14th Circle, and 15th Circle. At 13th, the Nethermancer gives a special ability called the Astral Face, and or not the, just Astral Face, and... As a simple action, for four strain, the Adept can alter the features of their face and head, giving them a better sense of astral space. The altered appearance is smoother, and often silver or black. The eyes contain specks of unearthly light, and the teeth are dull and unreflective, with a small rune on the surface of each tooth. The Adept adds a plus-five bonus to spellcasting tests, including concise casting, and effect tests while this ability is in effect. It can be used a number of rounds per day, up to the Adept's rank in Nethermancy, the strain paid when the ability is activated, not for each round. But if the depth stops using the ability for a round, the strain must be paid to reactivate it.
1: Yeah, this is a pretty notable boost to the Nethermancer's spellcasting ability. Uh, Similar in some respects to the Elementalist gets a similar kind of spellcasting boost or ability boost that lasts for a limited amount of time per day. This is a carryover, an ability that was available to... Nethermancers in first edition, uh, it was originally their 15th circle sort of capstone ability. The difference being that the original version of it didn't have a duration, but only provided a one-step bonus to spellcasting and will force. This one gives a more significant bonus, but at the cost of it only being a li- available a limited amount of time per day.
0: Yeah, and not creepy at all. That doesn't play to the Nethermancer one Oh, day. no, 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 no. not from that look. No, that's great. I I can already see that cinematically speaking on a big movie screen somewhere. So the Nethermancer at 13 circle also gets a plus three to their social defense replacing any bonuses before that. And you increase their karma step from a step six step from a D6 to a D8. I got that wrong again. It's been 13 times. Uh, And you added plus one to their base initiative step. So that always helps. And then the discipline talent at 13 circle because wow, that's a lot of stuff. Astral Domain. Yeah, we talked about this way back
1: with the wizard. It is a master tier option for them. This allows the adept to take control over part of astral space in an area, potentially reducing the corruption level. It lasts for a limited amount of time, but yeah, it modifies the effective corruption level of astral space in the area.
0: Well done, you. So, 14th circle, when you finally get there, the Nethermancer uh, gets a plus five to their Mystic Defense, replacing all the other bonuses before that. And then you also gain two additional recovery tests per day. So, yay you. And then the discipline Talent at 14th circle is Nether Soul.
1: This is only available to Nethermancers. Costs a recovery test for them to use it, but it provides a bonus to Mystic Armor and bonuses to Mystic and Social Defense against Fear and Intimidation, and lasts for a number of hours. Like, it is a long-term bonus in comparison to Lion's Spirit, which provides kind of similar bonuses against Fear and Intimidation. Nether Soul lasts for hours and also provides a Mystic Armor bonus.
0: Yeah. Pretty badass.
1: It's a really nice sort of anti-fear boost.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So on to 15th circle, and we're not quite done yet. The Nether gets a plus two to their physical defense. So as you can tell, they end up with a plus three social, plus five mystic, and a plus two physical defense uh, from their original number. And they also now get a plus three to their mystic armor from their base mystic armor. So that's also not bad. And the discipline Talent at 15th circle, spliced weave.
1: Spliced Weave is the capstone 15th circle ability for all of the magician disciplines. Uh, This is the one that allows the caster to make multiple thread weaving tests to weave threads. It also makes them all simple actions, which means that you can weave all of the threads and then cast the spell in that same round. It does actually allow that because it makes it, the, it makes those thread weaving tests simple actions. That's why it can't be stacked with concise casting, because you can either weave everything and cast in a round, or you can weave and then cast two spells over the course of two rounds. But that is sort of a clarification that I hadn't brought up specifically with regards to the previous times we talked about that. I do want to mention that that is the case.
0: Well, yeah, since this is the last spellcaster we get to talk about, so... <laughs> Might as well hit all the high points now. So if that's not enough for you, and by all means, it should not be enough for you. Uh, let's get through the rest of the master talent options. And the only one that not in the companion from this time is kind of a holdover from earlier rank or others animal possession. I think is interesting for the nethermancer to have as an option.
1: Yeah. Possession <laughs> is creepy. It ties a little bit into. Yeah. Dominate beast. I think they get dominate beast earlier. Um, So it kind of ties into that. Let me double check. Oh, no. Dominate Beast is not available to Nethermancers, but animal possession is this shows up as a journeyman option for the Beastmaster and a warden option for the scout who we haven't talked about yet. But this basically allows the user to possess an animal exactly what it sounds like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good thing. At least if you're the Nethermancer doing so. Anyway, on to the rest of the list from the Companion. uh, Alphabetically speaking, casting pattern.
1: Uh, We talked about this with the other magician disciplines. This allows the magician to gain a bonus to their spell casting test prior to, like, or sort of as a bonus to their attempt to cast the spell.
0: Yeah, so range pattern and casting pattern are both options for the Nethermancer. Confront her. This... Is
1: an option for troubadours, and it's the rank 15, uh, the circle 15 discipline talent for weaponsmiths. We've talked about this before. This is the super legendary ability that allows the user to distract or keep a horror busy with a lot more stories of it actually happening than confirmed cases of it
0: being used totally i was wrong effect pattern is here i was in my mind spelling it with an a not an e my fault entirely so effect pattern effect versus effect yes i was Straight off on my spelling
1: effect pattern uh is similar to casting pattern or range pattern in that it'll gives you a test that allows you to modify the effect step of a spell that you have cast. Yeah, I'm all caught up now. And again, these are, these are above and beyond any modifications that you might make using extra threads. Yes. Lion Spirit. Talked about this one previously. In fact, we talked about it just a few moments ago. <laughs> yes. Lion Spirit provides bonuses to... It's an anti-fear booster. Yeah. I think it provides bonuses to defense ratings to resist fear or intimidation. Resist Pain. Always useful. A lot of disciplines get this. It reduces the penalty that you suffer as a result of having wounds.
0: And the aforementioned second chance. Yeah, we've talked about this. Nothing more to add today. Nope, nope. Already in the emails as well from the questions. Uh, and then shared matrix. Uh,
1: this is the master tier matrix that is available to all magicians. It does not hold any prewoven threads the way that the armored or enhanced matrices do, what it does do is allow you to store up to its rank in total circle of spells within it. So a rank six shared matrix can hold six circle one spells or two threes or a four and a two or whatever combination that you want, as long as the total circle of the spells within it does not exceed the matrices rank.
0: Nicely done. So of those options, as we've done for every other discipline before now, which ones are, since you have a high circle Nethermancer, should she get up?
1: Well, I don't have one that's this high. Circle. Yeah, no,
0: but I'm saying, should she get up this high? What would you actually do? Because you've been a Nethermancer for years now. Looking at the master list, I would actually
1: pass on Lion Spirit because I've got Nether Soul. Because you get Nether Soul as a discipline talent yeah. at 14 Circle, and that provides you the same kind of bonuses that mm-hmm. Lion Spirit does. So I probably wouldn't necessarily Fair. double up on that. Resist Pain, I would I would probably take because it's just so gosh darn useful. Shared Matrix, yeah, almost certainly. And then, <laughs> because I'm a sucker as a spellcaster, Casting Pattern and or Effect Pattern, because there are only three slots, I would have to decide which of those that I would go with. That's
0: a tough choice. Flip a coin in that one.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that I would be more inclined to go with mm-hmm. Effect Pattern as the one that I would take because that allows you to boost the effect of a spell that might not have its effect normally boosted by your spell casting. Whereas casting pattern might give you, end up netting you perhaps more successes. If those extra successes don't do anything particularly useful, yeah. I would need to really like sit down and look at the spells yeah. and, and which one would be worthwhile. Warden talent options, Armored Matrix almost certainly. Soul Aegis is really nice because of the defense boosts there. Safe Thoughts, Decent. I don't know that Evidence Analysis or Item History, those are worth picking up if you don't, for some reason, have them in the group yet. But they are both available to multiple disciplines earlier. So the only reason that I would see to pick those up would be if you don't have them yet and you find that it is worth it. You know, if you're dealing with a lot of spirits, you'll want to look at Contest of Wills and or Summoning Circle. Perfect focus um, would be handy for Oh yeah. tying into like extended summonings. Actually, perfect focus would be really nice for providing yourself even more bonus there. But I, I would probably like armored matrix again for me would be like the first one just because you want more matrices. Um, Soul Aegis is really nice as, as the defense boosts that it can provide you. And then kind of the other stuff that you would pick up would depend on like what might be needed in your group and what you might want to do. I think when you're getting to these circles, particularly where we don't have a lot of spells available for there, this might be the point where you really start expanding even more into dealing with spirits and stuff because they can be super handy. And so having those talents to deal
0: with them would be worthwhile. Absolutely. Absolutely. Folks, if you have any questions for us, because we answered a slew of them at the very beginning of this, uh, please feel free, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Next time, I think it's time for you to go and be worldly war for your legend. Good night, everybody.